we almost feel like we're drowning. It's just too much, the volume, the intensity, and not getting that break in between. Yeah, we were starting to get burnt out. Silently tracing the cracks through the chaos. Why? He's doing so well. Why? As much as I'm doing to help everyone, I felt helpless. Grieving what cannot come back. What's gone away? I wondered if we we're doing the right thing or did we miss something or what else can we do? Feeling the weight of the sorrow's night. Become family, for God's sake. That's what makes it different. You can't find your way through the black. So you pray for It really brings up a lot of, like, there's a brokenness in our system. In May 2021, a 40-something-year-old undocumented Hispanic man was transferred to the ICU at the Wellstar Kennestone Hospital in Marietta, Georgia, with complications due to COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has wreaked havoc on the U.S. healthcare system, causing shortages in everything from equipment, staffing, and even the time and care that's available to patients. It's become increasingly common to hear of burnout, frustration, and caregivers pushed far past their breaking point. Some of the best minds we've ever had practicing medicine because we have the best science, the best technology, and they're absolutely struggling with this. People are just simply exhausted. This is the story of a perfect storm. What happens when struggling, overstressed healthcare workers care for a man who embodies hope? The ICU is a busy place. It doesn't stop for anyone. And yet, you know, this team found, you know, deliberate ways to spend time with this patient. From the Mind of Medicine podcast, this is Parallel Pandemics. I'm clinical health psychologist, Dr. Ryan Brashears. You're listening to episode one. On October 23rd, 2019, William Wan penned an article in the Washington Post that was titled, Healthcare System Causing Rampant Burnout Among Doctors, Nurses. His opening line, imagine a healthcare system in which doctors and nurses are so exhausted and beaten down that many of them work like zombies. Wan's article summarized findings of a report that had been recently released by the National Academy of Medicine that report suggested that somewhere between 35 and 50% of U.S. nurses and physicians were experiencing substantial symptoms of burnout. I think it was just something that has been accepted in the nursing field, especially in intensive care, as just the nature of the beast. Brian White is no stranger to workplace stress. After spending seven years between the cardiovascular and trauma ICUs, he spent the past six as a cardiovascular perfusionist, where he operates the cardiopulmonary machines that artificially support a patient's circulatory and respiratory functions. It's a difficult job. In an ICU, there are obvious stressors. There are people who are critically ill. There are multiple medicines. There's a, you know, often a ventilator. Um, there are people that need constant care and manipulation to do well, to begin to recover. And I think that's just a standard of healthcare, especially before COVID, that was just the nature of the ICU. And even then, the burnout rate was at a constant, you know, steady rate. It's just the nature of, you know, intensive care. Working hard is part of life for us. That's Dr. Elias Chaloub, 
a critical care intensivist at Wellstar Kennestone. For the nursing staff, for the respiratory therapist, we all work hard all the time. It's what we signed up for being doctors. It's what we signed up for to take care of those patients. It's, it's what we have chosen to be our way of life. Concerned about the effects of this way of life, in 2016, the Critical Care Society's collaborative, the CCSC, a coalition of the four major critical care-focused U.S. professional and scientific societies, published a call for action that reviewed the scientific literature and addressed potential interventions for mitigating burnout. The coalition unanimously identified burnout as an occupational hazard for clinicians working in the ICU. A year after it was formed, the CCSC convened a summit in Naperville, Illinois, with experts like Dr. Ruth Kleinpelt, a critical care nurse, professor of nursing education at Vanderbilt, and past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I would think that the summit for individuals who were here raised the awareness of the importance of addressing uh, the burnout syndrome and stress in critical care. Um, for years, you know, it's sort of like a template. If you work in the ICU, you sort of toughen it up and, and just take what comes. But I think there's greater awareness now that we need to be resi build resilience and to recognize that individuals have to take care of themselves in order to take care of patients and families in the ICU. Dr. Mark Moss, a critical care physician on faculty at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center, and past president of the American Thoracic Society expressed his sentiments as well. Figuring out how ICU physicians can identify burnout is a very important question. It's sort of like if you needed glasses, you don't realize how your eyesight's gotten worse till you put the glasses on and you realize what you couldn't see anymore. I um, mean, burnout's similar to that. In 2017, Dr. Tate Shanafelt and colleagues analyzed data and published findings that suggested that 44% of physicians were experiencing at least one symptom of burnout. The study also revealed that doctors had about a 40% increased risk for burnout compared to other working U.S. adults. At 48% prevalence, critical care physicians had the highest rate of physician burnout of any medical specialty according to a national survey published the following year. And in February 2020, the initial findings of the CCSC were published. In the past two weeks, the number of cases of COVID-19 outside China has increased 13-fold. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. We have rung the alarm bell loud and clear. One hundred days after William Wan's article ran in the Post, and a month after the CCSC published their recommendations regarding burnout, for only the sixth time in their history, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency in response to COVID-19. So the national healthcare infrastructure had some pre-existing vulnerabilities, and then COVID hit. And we all know what can happen when a system is susceptible, and then we superimpose additional stressors on it. Murphy's Law. This morning, the United States is facing a major healthcare problem. Six in 10 healthcare workers, understandably, say they're burned out. Many say this last year was their breaking point. There's a narrative around burnout, but to fully understand what burns a person out, 
we have to also understand who they are, their needs, their motivations, why they do what they do, what makes their work fulfilling. I took a shift from academics to this because I realized well, at the end of my life, it doesn't matter if I'm an associate professor, you know, all these like titles, it's not important. It was my life, my legacy, you know, what did I do? What was my story? If you ask any Wellstar employee, anyone from my team, they'll tell you the same thing. And I can bet you anyone that we love our group. I can bet you everyone's going to say the same thing. That's what makes it very rewarding is when you see that you beat the statistical odds and help save somebody's life and bring them back to a functional status that they that they wanted to be, bring them back to the quality that they had pre-event. That's what makes it rewarding. That's what makes it different than anything else. I guess the common thread is to the ability to help somebody else. You know, we all, we all have to do something for a living to, to feed ourselves, right? And it's a um, tremendous benefit if the fundamental mission of your job is to benefit somebody else. And I think that is a um, a very powerful organizing principle to be inspired by and to be motivated by every day. I'm helping to preserve real life and not just existence. And I never go to bed wondering, did I do anything meaningful today? I always know I did something meaningful. Maintaining connection to meaning, purpose, and a sense of personal accomplishment is a sort of protective factor that can help to keep burnout at bay. But as a construct, burnout is more than that. It also expresses itself through emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, which sometimes is better understood as cynicism. And while brief, time-limited crises might temporarily disrupt functioning, extended periods of stress can have a more pervasive and harmful effect. We don't have to go too far back to understand the psychological impacts of a novel virus on healthcare workers. In 2003, SARS hit a cluster of Toronto-based hospitals, producing a wave of anxiety within the healthcare community. The problem for us in responding to SARS has centered on the fact that we know so little about it. What is it? What are its characteristics? How is it spreading? When are people infectious? How do we test for it? And how do we control and treat it? That was the government of Ontario's Public Security Commissioner, Dr. James Young, providing testimony in an April 2003 U.S. Senate hearing on SARS, and his remarks sound strangely contemporary. Up to 35% of frontline healthcare clinicians experienced high levels of distress during that pandemic, and post-traumatic stress and burnout symptoms persisted up to two years after the first case. Just for comparison of scale, at the time of this recording, approximately 700 people have died in Canada from COVID-19 for every one that died due to SARS. So if SARS was able to expose vulnerabilities within the healthcare system, COVID-19 certainly was going to as well. It's a lot of death. Um, this disease does not discriminate, doesn't matter what age you are, what sex you are, what color, what nationality you are, it does not discriminate. We put so many people in body bags, I can't even remember the count. Now, when I talk about systems, there are many. There's the community that we live in. It's made up of people holding public offices, our schools, our religious establishments, etc. And then there's the organizational system within which we operate day to day, like where we work. 
And of course, there's the individual human system, our own experience of things. With COVID-19, I think it's fair to say that the virus and its effects have exposed and exacerbated the vulnerabilities in every system. Evolving over the course of several waves, things that were concerns like PPE or staffing shortages became crises. So we wouldn't really expect that clinician burnout would be any different. My name is Asif Sabiri. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician. We've seen a number of our respiratory therapists take other employment. Many people went back to school. Uh, we've lost nurses to other less demanding um, uh, employment or less demanding jobs within the healthcare sphere, as well as outside of healthcare. There have also been well-publicized national and local accounts of physicians, nurses, and other healthcare workers who have died by suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic. There is a heartbreaking loss in the front lines of this fight. A well-known ER doctor here in New York who battled to save the lives of so many others. Her family now says she has taken her own life. Not knowing the details of what transpired in, uh, in those settings, I don't want to naturally conclude that this is related, but one has to wonder, um, you know, what what kind of a role did this pandemic and the demands that it places on the individuals involved in the care of our patients, what 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 role did that have in uh, pushing these individuals to the brink? I do want to clarify that burnout and depression are correlated, but they're also distinct phenomena. Burnout doesn't cause suicide. It's a syndrome incurred by occupational stress, whereas depression is a psychiatric illness. Burnout can, however, lead to the onset of depression. We also know from the research that COVID-19 is an independent predictor of burnout, specifically symptoms of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. So if we follow the stream, it's reasonable to suggest that COVID-19 may contribute to burnout, which may contribute to the onset of depression, which could have a role in the development of suicidal thoughts. I'm Julie Grandegay. I am a palliative medicine physician. Dr. Grandegay is also the director of the inpatient palliative medicine program at Wellstar Kennestone, and she's highly attuned to the accumulation of stress on frontline clinicians. In the ICU, she's observed signs of physical and emotional exhaustion but her concerns began to grow in light of a new expression of stress. The team seemed more emotionally hardened, a symptom of compassion fatigue and burnout. I have tremendous respect and worry for the nurses at the bedside because, as always, they're the ones there for 10 hours, 12 hours, and the intensity of that is all the greater, and you can see it on their faces. I'm a Desert Store veteran. It's worse than when I was in the battle zone. But it just seems like the COVID, there's no end in sight for that right now. The numbers start to come down and then they just pile up higher. Some days I'll almost rather do that again. They are there, they're in the room with all the PPE, with that patient for hours on end. And I can, I wouldn't blame them if, you know, you need to harden so that you can get through that day and see the next one and the next one. And then only to have that patient leave that bed and another one come right back in their place within 24, 48 hours. And that is a lot of moral injury, emotional trauma. And that's what really makes us very sad, makes me worried. 
for us, our healthcare family. I think it's important that we recognize that the people we are working with are human beings. Um, they are extremely dedicated individuals and they do go beyond um, what should be normally expected of people in those roles. But when they do that, eventually it catches up with them. I'm seeing this with our nurses, I'm seeing this with our perfusionists, and I'm seeing certainly um, this with our providers, physicians and non-physician providers. Dr. Grandegay's intuition and Dr. Saberi's impressions, they're supported by data. From a June 21 survey in Wellstar ICUs, 75% of nurses and nearly 80% of critical care physicians reported feelings of emotional hardening during the prior 30 days. For perspective, those rates are about double what we see in our nurses and pulmonologists who work in outpatient settings. I think we're at a breaking point right now. I think if the pandemic gets controlled, I think nothing's gonna happen. But if this thing goes on for another three to six months, you're gonna start seeing cracks. Or God forbid one of us gets sick, God forbid one of us gets really sick you know, they leave, you know, and I don't think we can afford to lose any more than what we already, I mean, we, we are very, very tight, right? Are we hiring more people? But the work is there. We've never seen this much death on our unit. Nadine Lynch has been a nurse for 13 years. The first five at the bedside and the last eight as a nurse manager. Before that, she was a respiratory therapist. As the nurse manager of the Kennestone ICU, she was one of the first nurse managers to reach out and request emotional support for her team. I remember it was March 18th of 2020, and we got the word that our unit was being changed to a COVID unit. The staff started crying because the team was trying to figure out now every patient on this unit is gonna be COVID. Now we've had, we've just started to have one and two but they're moving out all the non-COVID patients to move in all the COVID patients. And it became overwhelming for the team to the point that people were thinking they're gonna resign. Um, I had people come to office and said that they're unsure that they're ready for that. Um, there's a lot of unknown. Um, we didn't know how the disease worked. We knew that a lot of people were not making it at the time. You heard it on the news. So the team went into overdrive to the point that I came up on, I'd gone downstairs to get grab some lunch, I came back and I walked back into a whole different unit. For Nadine, the ICU had changed almost overnight. Before COVID-19, according to the Society of Critical Care Medicine, approximately 20 to 40% of patients admitted to the ICU required mechanical ventilation. Within the first few months of the pandemic, an international study suggested that up to 88% of COVID-positive ICU patients required ventilator support. This means that throughout COVID, the percentage of patients who are able to communicate verbally has declined significantly. More patients are agitated, which means that more need sedation, and their families have often not been present in the rooms due to visitation policies. There are negative pressure and high-flow oxygen machines in the rooms, so it's noisier. Caitlin Dooley remembers thinking, it's so loud in here. She said that at times it was difficult to even hear alarms going off in other rooms. And the doors to each patient room are closed to reduce the likelihood of spread. 
And then there's the physical demand of donning, doffing, managing long shifts with personal protective equipment. All that to say, the ICU had quickly become a very different place to work. Fast forward 20 months, and after seeing a marked difference in the team, Dr. Grandegay's words ring true. The expectation that you can sit with sorrow and loss all day and not be affected is like expecting to walk through water and not get wet. So we know what we're signing up for. Usually we have time to, if I can borrow from the same quote, we have time to dry off. I think right now we almost feel like we're drowning. It's just too much, the volume, the intensity, and not getting that break in between. Plus, again, we're expected to be the experts. Expected to be experts, expected to be many things, but innately human is not always one of them. I think traditional medical training, whether it's tragic or not, makes us inured to the death and dying of our patients. That's how we deal with it. I mean, if we don't react to um, every patient who dies on our watch, we can get, we can keep going and, you know, get our job done. And that hardening of attitudes of, um, of people who work in the healthcare sphere um, has been something that we've noticed a lot. Physicians particularly, much more so than non-physicians, I think, they are um, inured to the observation of death and dying because that's, how they, that's, that's what they're there to do, to deal with it. I consider myself a very, very strong individual in these situations. But there have been many instances in which I've had to hide tears, you might say. I, mean, I don't mean literally tears, but, um, you know, I've had those events and uh, I've seen the same thing happen with all of my colleagues. Uh, the strongest amongst us have been moved by these events. When we're exposed to death or repeated trauma, it's common and self-protective to build walls, but sometimes even our best defenses fail. Sometimes we have an experience with something or a somebody that penetrates the most robust walls we've constructed. And in those moments, we might struggle to contain the emotions that we've partitioned off. These moments may reveal the actual truth, that we're not unaffected, that our compassion has not eroded, the empathy is still very much present, just contained because it feels risky to acknowledge what's inside. And that takes courage. Uh, I think we're going to call him Carlos, right? Carlos. The story of Carlos is one that defies simple narrative. It's complicated, multifaceted, and inescapably personal. And it had profound impact on the Kennestone ICU team. While his actual name and other potentially identifiable information had been changed to protect his identity, we can say that when he was admitted to Kennestone, he was in his early 40s. He was an undocumented person from Mexico. Spanish speaking, knew very little English. He worked in construction, he had one known relative with whom he lived, but no other family in the U.S. He maintained contact with his siblings in Mexico, but he hadn't seen them in over a decade. 
to our knowledge, he was unmarried and he didn't have kids of his own. Other than the fact that he'd been a smoker, he had no known pre-existing health conditions. Seemed like just the regular kind of Joe, you know, struggling, you know, working his way through life, trying to get through it. In mid-May 2021, Carlos was admitted to a local hospital with respiratory failure due to COVID-19. When he was initially hospitalized, he'd already been sick for at least two weeks. He was hypoxic. His oxygen saturation was around 80%. He was admitted to the ICU on 100% oxygen at 60 liters a minute, and he'd been treated with steroids, Actemra, remdesivir. He'd been progressing well, but then he took a turn for the worse. He developed shortness of breath, and his oxygen saturation fell. He was tried on bi-level positive airway pressure, or BiPAP, but he didn't improve. He was intubated, placed on a ventilator, and the attending at the facility reached out to Dr. Saberi at Wellstar Kennestone to assess his candidacy for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, also known as ECMO. We have very strict criteria. We don't make a decision until we have actually seen the patient in most instances. And in this case, it seemed appropriate that we should bring him over and then assess. Carlos was accepted for transfer to Wellstar Kennestone. Dr. Saberi reached out to Carlos's family and through an interpreter, described the treatment. The best way to understand ECMO is to draw the analogy to dialysis. Blood can be taken out of the body. It can be run through a device that provides oxygen to the blood and takes out carbon dioxide from it. And that blood can be returned to the body. And depending upon what kind of a problem that you are treating, you could be treating severe respiratory failure or you could be treating severe cardiovascular failure using the same technology. This technology is also used during cardiac surgery and is commonly known as cardiopulmonary bypass. So that is the, that is the place from which the term bypass comes from. Dr. Saberi was able to secure consent. He had been placed on a ventilator before um, he was transferred. And so when he arrived, obviously he was not in a position to talk to us. Um, and he was bad enough that we emergently had to activate our team and put him on ECMO. Our goal with the ECMO program has been to mitigate the amount of support from the ventilator, which does cause some injury to the lungs. In fact, significant injury to the lungs, because when you are that sick, you require higher settings on the ventilator to put it, um, you know, in the easiest way to understand this. Um, and that can lead to lung injury and ultimately to bad outcomes. So putting them on ECMO, um, it uh, blocks that from happening. So the next day we were able to get him off the ventilator with the ECMO machine supporting his respiration, doing very well. For a medical team that had spent the past 18 months soldiering through, fighting a novel virus and a parallel fight against fatigue and burnout, here they began caring for somebody who changed the environment altogether. Someone who allowed them to engage, to talk, and most daring of all, to hope. Because in an ICU overflowing with critically ill, non-responsive intubated patients, Carlos was wide awake. Into the land of the living black bleeds orange into blue I am coming to light light is breaking through 
this was episode one of Parallel Pandemics and the Mind of Medicine podcast, made possible by the Wellstar Health System Foundation. This series is dedicated to all of our frontline healthcare workers, the pillars of compassion. Music throughout the episode was by Nashville singer-songwriter Matthew Perryman-Jones. You can check Matthew's music out at www.mpjmusic.com. Thank you to our clinician well-being and resiliency and to the Maleshko teams for helping coordinate, facilitate, and produce this project. To hear more of Parallel Pandemics, join us for Episode 2.